This is episode number 14 with Francis Guinan. Coming up. And they were quite willing to send me to law school if they thought、uh, I could make a go of that because clearly this acting thing wasn't working out at all. Can you dance? You bet I can dance. I can roller skate too. I can. What do you need? We were bold. I mean,、uh, there's a certain confidence that comes with being bold on stage. There would be people that hated the play, but they'd sit through the second act so that they could stay and boo. What would a human being do in this situation? And that's that's not always as easily answered as one would like. I quit smoking after forty years, and it was sort of acting that that brought me there. I said, "Isn't this supposed to get easier as time goes on?" Hey there, my name is Nathan Agin, and this is the Working Actors Journey, bringing you in-depth conversations with actors that have been working professionally for decades. Hope you're doing well out there. We continue season two today, and if you're just joining us, we have a number of fantastic episodes where working actors share where they've been, how they do it, and what they've learned along the way. Actors who have been putting in the work day in, day out, and who have certainly had their ups and downs like everyone else. These conversations are meant to inspire and reassure you on your journey. That you're not alone. You're not crazy. And though the road may be long and challenging, there are rewards ahead. And I really want to help you as an actor out there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss anything ahead, and visit the website workingactorsjourney.com where you can get a copy of the guide "Twelve Top Acting Tips from Season One." These are some of the best ideas taken from all the episodes compiled in one place. And it's waiting for you. There's also a link in the episode description. Today on the show is Francis Guinan. He's a Chicago-based actor who has been a part of the Steppenwolf Ensemble for over 30 years and been in more than 40 shows with them. In fact, you can see him on stage in the world premiere Downstate by Bruce Norris until November 18th in Chicago, and then the cast heads to the National Theater in London. I actually saw the show back in October, and like much of the work Steppenwolf produces, not only does it entertain, but it challenges you. It asks really uncomfortable yet important questions, all while delivering a first-rate production, and they truly do some of the best theater around. Go if you have the chance, either in Chicago or London. Now, in today's episode, Francis and I cover discipline and focus. Messing with other actors on stage, great directors, rehearsal questions, John Mahoney, Shakespeare, younger actors, current passions, and a lot more. Having great mentors and access to outstanding teachers can make the difference in your career, and that's what this show is hoping to do—to connect you with actors that could change your life and make your acting journey easier and more satisfying. And if you'd like to get exclusive access to additional episodes, bonus content, and items that are available nowhere else, I invite you to become a premium member of the Working Actors Journey, starting at just two dollars per month at workingactorsjourney.com/premium. 
Just to give you an idea of benefits, last month I sent out an exclusive follow-up with our guest from episode number 13, Reed Burney. Members learned his thoughts on what changed so that he could have the career he does. And they also got to know before anyone else who today's guest was. So if those kinds of insider scoops and bonus content are up your alley, become a premium member. Again, just $2 per month to get started. Plus, by joining, you're ensuring that this show continues. Consider this the most inexpensive and possibly most valuable acting class you'll ever take. Join now at workingactorsjourney.com slash premium or see the show notes and episode description for a link. So here's a bit more about Francis Guinan's journey. He grew up in Iowa and went to Iowa State to study pre-med, but changed directions and went to Michigan State and then did graduate work at Illinois State in theater. He was in Minnesota doing theater and improv and then got a call to join a few college classmates in a production in Chicago. These were the beginning years of Steppenwolf. He has been an ensemble member for 30 years, and a few notable productions with them include Balm and Gilead, which we discuss a bit, True West, directed by Gary Sinise and with Jeff Perry, Laurie Metcalf, and John Malkovich, The Grapes of Wrath and August Osage County, both of which went to Broadway, and The Seafarer. He's also performed at numerous other theaters in Chicago, including the Goodman, Court, and Victory Gardens theaters, as well as at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. He has over 85 credits in film and TV, including as the governor on Boss with Kelsey Grammer, the movie The Last Airbender, and as a series regular on the show Erie, Indiana. Are you looking for more info from industry insiders and great teachers about being an actor? And do you want this as something you can listen to on the go? Well, you're in luck. As a listener of the Working Actors Journey podcast, Audible is offering you a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Whether it's one hour or 15 hours, it doesn't matter. Whatever you want, that first item is totally free. To download your audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. Here are a few recommendations for your acting journey. The Actor's Life by Jenna Fisher from The Office, read by the author and others, including our guest, Reed Burney. Secrets of Screen Acting by Patrick Tucker, a TV and film director, read by David Lawrence the Seventeenth. Respect for Acting by Uta Hagen, read by Angel Masters. Get one of these or anything else at workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. I'm thrilled I had the chance to speak with Francis, especially after seeing him in many productions. He's a wonderful actor and a very kind and open person. It's a great conversation, and I know you'll enjoy it. Plus, he talks about working on a monologue from the play The Rembrandt, which premiered at Steppenwolf. So be sure to stick around for that. And as I mentioned earlier, Francis is on stage in the world premiere of Downstate at Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago until November 18th, and I highly encourage you to check out the show either in the U.S. or when the production lands in London's National Theater. So here we go with episode number 14. Please enjoy my chat with Francis Guinan. 
Have you been pursuing much uh, film and TV work recently, or been focused more? Oh on well, yeah, film? always. I mean, I had. Uh, I'm always looking for TV work. The, the problem is, it's uh, the TV people who hire uh, locally really don't make much room for uh, theater schedules. So if you've got a theater gig, the, they'll usually take a pass on uh, because they just don't want to. They just don't want to get into the uh, scheduling conflict. Sure. I was certainly thinking about the show Boss that you did. So um, yeah. I guess that was a, you know the first time, or maybe the first time you worked with with Kelsey on on with that show. Um, uh, actually, it was the second time, but that's that's another story. Oh, oh, okay. With oh, that's right. Uh, you were on Frasier as well, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, you said it was another story. Is there is it a particularly interesting story? Well, it's a very short story. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I was I was I was literally opera snob number two. Ah, okay. The, there was a scene where I guess we shared the stage, but really didn't have much to do with one another. But Voss was the second time. We right. Well, and, you know, it was funny. I, I, I watched the whole series of Boss, and uh, I think by the time I started watching it, we, we were had already been in Chicago, and so I was a little bit familiar with some of the actors. Uh, you know, there sure. were certainly a number of Steppenwolf actors in the show or, or oh, company yeah. members. But the part of uh, the governor, it almost seemed, even the little bit I knew about you as an actor, it almost seemed like written for your strengths. Um, and I was just curious how you prepared for that audition or that part or, you know, how it came about. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Um, well, let me see. Um I guess I do. It was a it was a piece from this from the first episode, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, where he's he's essentially just going off on his assistant, um, played by Gabe Ruiz. So the uh, I guess the audition went pretty well. I mean, I was the, certainly the right age, and and uh, you know my resume looked all right. I'd I'd done enough television that they that they knew I'd probably show up memorized, <laughs> <laughs> show up on time with my lines memorized. So. But it was an interesting thing. The um, they did write. They they wrote very specifically for the actors that were involved. Uh, there were a couple of very lucky scenes, I think, in the first episode that uh, played to um, at least uh, I, I found rather easy to play. Mm -hmm. And of course, I had a couple of scenes with Gabe, and and he's he's an immensely responsive actor. And, uh, it was it was real easy to work with him too. So, but uh, but yeah, it turns out that the governor's the role of the governor was actually uh, was actually a rather comic one, um, mm -hmm. right? As it turned out, they ended up giving me a, uh, several really funny lines. I mean, of course, he was on his way. It was sort of set up for a comedic take on it anyway, because he was he was clearly being bamboozled. Out of the right. out of the out of the office of of governor by Kelsey Grammer's character, mm -hmm. and uh, which of course is sort of rife with uh, comic possibilities anyway. Yeah, the Pantalone character. Oh, oh right, get, from uh, Canadian Delatte. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You're right. It was it was a lot of fun, and and I I remember you. I remember reading that. You had said it was it was a show. I think maybe you know earlier on in your career that you discovered that you had this comedic timing or, or comedic uh, ability among other people who you thought were funny that seemed to give you a little bit of confidence. You know, it did actually. I mean, I've, 
I mean, I've worked with people who are really good at it, and, and the, <laughs> the comparison is not kind. But uh, um, but nonetheless, yeah, it's uh, you know, I'd worked a lot in uh, improvisational theater up in Minneapolis with uh, the Dudley Riggs Company, and uh, had worked a few times uh, with the people at Second City. But yeah, it's uh, uh, I've, I've been very fortunate in some of the roles I've been given. In fact, I've been very fortunate in all the roles I've been given. Uh, some some of them have actually worked out rather rather well in terms of uh, the comedy aspect of it. So yeah, that kind of gives me a good jumping off point. You were talking about some of the the training you did. I wanted to you know start a little bit at the beginning. So you grew up sure. in uh, Iowa, correct? I did. Yes, in, in Western Iowa, a place called Council Bluffs, okay. uh, which is uh, famous for being across the river from Omaha. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. And so what was uh, life like for you as a kid? What kind of things were you into at that, living in Council Bluffs? Baseball. Uh, baseball was a big thing. I played uh, basketball in grade school. And let me see, I was, in, uh, I was in the fo- on the football team in um, high school for about 10 minutes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, I, we were like taking, running up and down this, uh, this hill uh, next to the next to the football field and throwing up and, and <laughs> just getting rubber legged and falling down. And I just thought, well, this isn't much fun. <laughs> the, uh, the training aspect of it, I didn't find particularly appealing at all. So, right. but I ended up going, uh, you know, working in on the choral groups and theater and that sort of thing. I was, I was always interested in extracurricular stuff, but I just, I, you know, I didn't have the drive to, to become a jock. What, what kind of work did your parents do? Well, my mom was a, a housekeeper, and mm-hmm. uh, my father uh, worked in the grain business uh, all of his life. Uh, he was uh, he bought and sold grain in uh, western uh, Western Iowa and eastern Nebraska. Oh, I, I don't know for forty, fifty years, I think, and uh, I actually knew most of the farmers. Um, oh, within like. 100, 150 miles of the grain elevator that he ran. Wow. But anyway, we would work for him uh, when I was in high school. We'd work for him during the summer. And in order to make sure that the regular crew didn't get too, uh, uh, didn't get jealous of the fact, oh, well, he's hiring his kids again, he'd save up all the very worst jobs that uh, over the course of a year <laughs> that none of the regular crew wanted. <laughs> so we would end up like cleaning out the spoiled grain. Oh, uh, at the bottom yep. of a pit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've smelled spoiled. I haven't. No, I've not been that lucky. It's uh, it's pretty disturbing. Oh, and uh, and of course you're dodging rats all the time, running around your ankles. Oh, um, you're okay. digging all of this stuff out. It's 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 pretty unpleasant. And frankly, you know, one of the things that my father would remind us: okay, now there's this. Or there's college, so you, you guys <laughs> go ahead and make up your mind what it is you want to do. Well, so at what point did you did you start thinking about? Were you going to college, uh, planning to pursue theater? No, I, I went to Iowa State uh, with a pre med major. Really? Okay. Yeah, and and a draft number of six, I'm afraid. Oh. And, uh, so I got into organic chemistry my freshman year, and it was it was pretty disastrous. So I, you know, I, I had always been interested in science and things like that, and and I hadn't really any 
plans to become a doctor, but it seemed like a a good way to get into scientific study of some sort. Mm -hmm. But no, that that wasn't working out at all. So turns out the second uh, I'd, I'd always done theater in, in high school, so I, I tried out for a play in um, in my sophomore year. I ended up getting um, noticed for the Irene Ryan contest. Remember Irene Ryan? I don't actually know. Irene Ryan played Granny uh, on the Beverly Hills. Oh, movie. okay, sure, yeah. But uh, but she had a very long career in theater. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the, one of the last roles she did was to play the grandmother in the musical Pippin, uh, which was a huge hit. She was quite rightfully renowned for that role. Anyway, she uh, she started a, uh, a scholarship program for for actors and would have uh, essentially uh, an audition at the uh, URTAs um, in a contest at uh, the Kennedy Center in Washington. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, I was selected to go. I was one of the finalists for that. I I didn't win, but it, I was in the first year of that, and I ended up getting a scholarship. I was offered a scholarship to Illinois State in theater, which I took up my junior year, and and lo and behold, all the people from Steppenwolf uh, were going to school at the same time, so we all hooked up together. Gosh, I went to school with Jeff Perry, Terry Kinney, Laurie Metcalf, John Malkovich. Very, uh, very fortuitous group to kind of uh, get in with. Yeah, actually, a good. As it turns out, it was uh, very serendipitous. So now I'm curious, how did your parents feel about going switching from science and pre med to acting and theater? Oh, they were okay about it. I mean, you know, I, I do recall one time I. My younger brother, uh, Jim, had uh, was working, going to law school, but he had a job in a in a numismatic office. Uh, anyway, uh, he had sent me uh, a bunch of uh, mint quality coins, like in plastic, those little plastic mm-hmm, coins, mm-hmm. that were printed the uh, the year that I was born, and they were oh, they were just gorgeous. And so I had them with me in Chicago, but when I was working at Steppenwolf, just that first year at Steppenwolf, and and uh, I had a job at Potbelly, Potbelly mm-hmm. Sandwich. Oh, sure, yeah. Anyway, it was, uh, so uh, I, I was so awful, they they fired me. Uh, I was such a terrible employee. They actually ended up firing me, and I was so broke that in order to make it to the theater one night on the bus, I actually broke open those those oh, plastic, <laughs> so I could so I could use them for bus fare. It was really sad, but I called up. I remember I, you were asking about my parents. I called up my parents and and asked if they'd. I was just a little behind on the rent, or I, I was going to be behind on the rent. So I, I asked for three hundred dollars so I could meet my, so I could make rent. And there was sort of a long pause on the phone. My dad said. Geez, Fran, you think this this acting stuff's working out? And they were quite willing to send me to law school if they thought uh, I could make a go of that, because uh-huh. clearly this acting thing wasn't working out at all. But uh, uh, it, it it turned out to be it turned out to be okay. I guess if you stick at anything long enough. Well, and so when you were at, um, you went to Illinois State for undergrad, correct? And then you and then you stayed there for your master's degree as well. Well, I, I went to Michigan State. Uh, oh, okay. To begin, um, I got a scholarship there, and then 
I was offered another scholarship to come back and finish my graduate work at Illinois State. Okay. And so what was it that you were seeking in, in that, in the graduate level work that you felt like you still needed? Oh, I, I, there was no real plan to it. <laughs> it uh, uh, I was, I was married and, and, uh, they were offering me a, a stipend and, and a scholarship and, uh, it was kind of a free ride. And it gave my wife then the opportunity to finish hers, you know, to finish school as well. So no, there was, shiny object somebody was shaking you know <laughs> held a shiny object up and i i just followed it well that leads me to a question of you've had such a a long and varied career i'm curious you know in the early days uh, you know you you gave the reason for pursuing the graduate work but did you have goals as an actor even maybe coming out of the master's program of the kind of actor you wanted to be or the kind of work you wanted to do no, no, I, I, I'm, I'm sure people are much more entrepreneurial now, you know, much more thoughtful, but no, I never had, I never had any sort of a plan. You know, I just got a call from H.E. Bacchus one day and, and, uh, who was artistic director at Steppenwolf at the, at that particular moment. And he said, well, you know, what are you doing? Uh, you want to come to Chicago and do this play with us? And, and, uh, we're, we're expanding the company. Oh, Okay. So, you know, I packed everything I had, <laughs> everything I owned into a Volkswagen and moved to Chicago. And that was, uh, you know, that was the extent of it. It wasn't like, you know, I'm sure some people, I, I've had people tell me, you know, I'm, I moved to Chicago because I really wanted to work with Steppenwolf. Or I did, you know, I moved to L.A. because I wanted to do blah, blah, blah. Or mm -hmm. no, it's, you know, the necessity of the moment being met by sort of a random opportunity. So that's, that's pretty much everything. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty much the way my career has gone. Well, I mean, there's another kind of way to look at it for me is, you know, by not having these plans, a lot of times you can avoid getting in your own way. And so I was just curious if you, do you feel like you were served better by not um, by not necessarily being so specific about what you wanted and just being more open to what came along? Well, it, that's certainly what I ended up doing. Um, I don't know. I, I do. I, I must say, I, I, one of the things that I, I wish I had done and I think would have made my life a little bit easier is if I had had some business classes or, mm -hmm. you know, some way of, of like, uh, you know, I got to college and I'd never had a, a bank account or uh, to speak of or a checking account. I, I mean, I was just as ignorant as a newborn babe, you know, on how to get along through the world. And uh, uh, I think I could have done with a bit more preparation, but you know, um, it, so yeah, I wish I'd taken some business classes. I wish I'd been a little smarter about how I handled my money. And, uh, um, if I had some, like a stronger sense of, you know, of, of the business, I, I think I might've done better quote unquote, but mm -hmm. then on the other hand, um, yeah, who knows? Right. Right. You know, I mean, I, I have to say, I, very early in my career, I ended up uh, getting into Steppenwolf uh, mm -hmm. just a few years out of college. And uh, that was sort of the North Star of my career. I, I loved working there. And 
uh, always had at least, uh, you know, the offer of a show a year. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, that was one thing I could sort of hang my hat on and sort of build around that. Yeah. So the the years leading up to to Steppenwolf, what um, what kind of work were you pursuing or or doing artistically or creatively? Well, let me see. Uh, I moved up to Minneapolis in um, uh, I guess seventy six, seventy seven, and uh, oh, I was just doing you know pickup work, uh, temp, a lot of temp working. I got a job at uh, uh, Dudley Riggs Brave New Workshop. Uh, doing improvisation, mm-hmm. uh, like $60 a week and, uh, ended up joining their touring company and learning all their sketches. And then finally, you know, uh, getting a job again, you know, people saw me in Minneapolis and that helped me get a job for, uh, uh, another show at, uh, Chanhassen dinner theater. And, and then I moved to Chicago. That's when the Steppenwolf uh, offer came up. And do you feel like, you were looking for a kind of artistic home when you joined no, or at least you know I, I really wasn't i i was i was looking my marriage had broken up and i was looking for sort of a new thing to do and lo and behold i get this call to move to chicago and oh yeah i'm there um mm-hmm. i i must admit i'm i'm a terrible example to anyone who's, who wants to build a career or get some sense of how that's done, I I couldn't tell you. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, get get invited to join Steppenwolf. That's <laughs> that's one great way to build a career. Um, but uh, no, it, I've never really had much of a plan at all. Uh, I I knew when I moved to New York that there were certain types of work that were available. I knew. When I moved to Los Angeles, that there were, uh, you know, that I'd probably end up doing television and film, you know, but, uh, you know, you get yourself an agent and you just go out and audition and, you know, whatever, whatever comes up, you know, you just, okay, I'll do that. Right. You know, can you dance? You bet I can dance. I can roller <laughs> skate too. I can, you know, what do you need? You know, you mentioned auditions. How have your views changed about auditions from you know the very early days to you know now if you have to audition for something oh i was a great believer in it at the time uh i started out i mean that made all the sense in the world i mean since i've you know i've directed a couple of times and it's you know and the more auditions you go to i mean it's just it's it's tedious and stupid and it's like the worst way in the world you know, to choose to get an actor mm-hmm. uh, for a role, but you know it's the only one they've got. And uh, so, I, I guess my approach to it was to, uh, you know, be off book as much as possible, and and uh, that's just good sense, I guess. But uh, the types of no, I never. Oh, I won't take that role. I I don't believe for the first thirty years of my career, I don't believe I ever turned down an audition. I mean, unless it was just I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean, no, no matter what it was, you know, my agent would call up. I've got an audition for this. Okay, I'll be there. I guess I had my uh, preferences as to you know the types of roles and things like that. But but no, I would. I didn't have 
much of a plan, but I had even less sense of how one would go about getting the kinds of roles. That, you know, I do know some people that were just starting off, they'd, they'd turn stuff down if it, wasn't, if it wasn't the kind of thing that they felt was worthy of their time artistically. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've, I've, never, I've never felt that. I mean, there are some things that, that are just... I think one of the reasons I turned down... One, one of the first times I turned down an audition was that it was just too stupid. <laughs> to, it was really too stupid. And I just, I just couldn't. I just couldn't do it. But by, by that time, too, I'd had a little money in the bank. So, you know, who knows if I'd been broke. <laughs> I'm sure I'd have taken the audition. Right, right, right. You know, obviously, there's a number of ways to look at it. But I, th- I think it also speaks to a certain you know, work ethic or style of, of just being willing to do whatever it takes or, or mindset or not being uh, necessarily quote unquote above the material uh, or too good for the material. Oh no, no, no. I mean, I don't, I think it's, I, I think something has to be really awful or right. stupid to be. Uh, no, I've, I've never felt I had, uh, you know, I've just never felt that I was the sort of actor that was above anything. I mean, you know, frankly, I'd, I'd much, I'd much rather watch some a good juggler than, than you know, a mediocre dramatic or comic actor on the stage. Than you know, at least at least the juggler has skill. Uh, right. At least it's it's interesting to look at, and it's something I can't do. So that, that's worth ten minutes of my time. So I'll, I'll I'll buy a ticket to that. Well, I mean, it also sounds like that the experience you had as a kid that you were sharing, you know, uh, you know, shoveling out the grain that, you know, there's, sure. this is what needs to be done. This is, you know, this is what's available and this is the job. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always thought of, uh, well, I shouldn't say this when I was starting out, I, I, you know, I had sort of grand, grand ideas about art and, and things like that. But it's uh, over, over time I've, uh, I've come to the conclusion it's, it's really a blue collar job. And, it's a lot of work. Uh, I think it's a lot more work than, you know, the general public realizes. And, you know, most of it's not, you know, not as much fun as it appears to be when, you know, when you see the final product. Of um, course, yeah. You know, it's like seeing a sword fight in The Lord of the Rings. Oh, my God, that was exciting. And, oh, mustn't that have been fun to do? Well, no, it's not. Because, you know, you get up at five in the morning and and you put the makeup on and, and you sit in your trailer until like four in the afternoon. Right. <laughs> and wait for them to get it all set up. And then, you know, you're on right. all of a sudden. And it's 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 extremely stressful. Yeah. I mean, after being extremely boring, and uh, you really need to have the mental discipline and uh, the physical discipline to uh, to make that work, you know, under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. So it's a uh, yeah, it's uh, it it ain't all glamour, right? As right. I, as I'm sure people have mentioned in your previous <laughs> yes. podcast. Talking about, you know, what you, the kind of the, the stamina required, um, I wanted to jump ahead to one of the early shows you did with uh, Steppenwolf, which is True West, which yeah. had a very long run overall. There were just, it was a very long run. And for, yeah. for younger actors, I mean, there is no kind of training for how to do a long run. Suddenly you're just doing a long run. And yeah. I'm curious, you know, what did that teach you? What did, what did you take away from, from that? Uh, experience of such a long run. 
Oh, well, it's an interesting thing. I mean, you, I discovered over the course of time, and, and we did several long runs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after about, in fact, it would, it, I'd hit a speed bump at, a, at six weeks. We'd open it, and if we ran it for six weeks, which I guess is like the, generally the, the length of runs mm-hmm. for off-loop uh, off theater at the time I was starting out anyway, and I'd just sort of run out of ideas, and it would get boring for about you know six, eight, ten performances. And then all of a sudden, it would get interesting again. I, I think one of the things that we always had at Steppenwolf that kept it interesting that we were able to maintain that sort of performance discipline was by being, I guess, slightly undisciplined on stage. Um, it would never be exactly the same every night. Mm-hmm. I mean, what okay. we would try to do is, you know, of course, you can't change the lines or anything or the blocking. But, I mean, there are times when you can change the spin of a line, the uh, who you give it to, um, where the scene, that particular moment in the play is going. And that can change from night to night. And, uh, we, we used to just, oh, we just had such fun playing with one another because, you know, there's, um, there was always a sense, I think with, uh, working at Steppenwolf, certainly when we were just starting out where you would of course be playing, you know, be, playing the part and, and acting the character. But at the same time, there's always that sort of twinkle going on. What can I do to amuse the other person or mess with the other person on stage? Or, uh, oh God, I remember <laughs> Laurie Metcalf used to be just, <laughs> used to be just merciless in terms of uh, changing little line readings or, oh, for instance, there was a, she she played Joan Allen's mom in um, And a Nightingale Sang. Mm-hmm. This was many years ago. But uh, Laurie was playing Joan's mother, and, and she finds out that Joan's character has uh, slept with this British soldier and that they're, they're dating. And uh, one night, uh, and Laurie, Laurie gets the news, and then she's block, the blocking was, she sits down to sort of absorb it. Well, one night, the night that I saw it, she, Lori gets the news that uh, Joan's been sleeping with this British soldier, and she is literally struck blind. <laughs> the news, she can't see anymore. And so she, she like reaches out in front of her, tries to get her bearings, and she sort of knows where she is in the room. <laughs> and she's she sort of hesitantly makes her way downstage until she finds the chair that she's supposed to sit in and just slowly sits down. It gets a, it gets a huge laugh. Sure. But of course she's never done it before. And, and so, and she doesn't do it the next night either. In fact, when I told Lori about it, you know, I guess it was years later. She said, Oh, I don't remember doing that at all. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, I mean, Steppenwolf is a very, a very particular animal in that you had a lot of very trained actors um, who were, as as you're saying, kind of very open to experimentation, uh, open to a kind of almost a visceral theater, and uh, and then also developing this shorthand because you're working together so much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sheldon Patinkin was uh, instrumental in 
that, uh, making sure that we work together uh, very closely and we're always aware of uh, what was going on around us on stage and always aware of where the scene was supposed to be going. I mean, that was a large part of rehearsals, mm -hmm. uh, was just to make sure that we all knew what story it was we were telling. Was there any sense in those early years, because, you know, obviously there had been a huge regional theater scene in the U.S. for a number of years, and, and yep. I think by that probably, you know, late 70s, early 80s, that was declining, if not you know, really kind of out the door, but was, were you guys looking to become the n next generation of that or did, was that even on the horizon or you just wanted to do theater? Well, I think it was the latter. We wanted to do theater and, and we had, you know, we were of course aware of Orson Welles and, uh, oh, the Mercury theater and, uh, right. Yeah. Uh, and we, we were aware of the group theater and, uh, and knew that people who worked very closely together, ended up you, uh, with a shorthand or at least a sort of this instinctive uh, feeling of uh, working together. But, I mean, I have to say, I mean, people would talk about, you know, Steppenwolf rock and roll theater, et cetera, et cetera. But, but you know, it, it, we, we were following in other people's footsteps, too. I mean, mm -hmm. oh, St. Nicholas Theater and, and Organic and all those people had worked very closely together. Uh, uh, compass players. Um, there was sort of a Chicago work ethic, mm -hmm. uh, and again, a, a blue-collar job, uh, that one comes to the work modestly, uh, uh, in service of of the piece itself, of the story that's being told. Uh, Spolin uh, training and, and that sort of thing that uh, Sheldon gave us were, was, was very much focused on that. And, and of course, that's, that's something that was very, that's homegrown here in Chicago. And, right. and People have been building on that uh, for years uh, since then. But I mean, that 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 sort of Steppenwolf style is really uh, a Chicago style. I mean, you can't find anybody in Chicago who doesn't, you know, who couldn't work at Steppenwolf because, I mean, that's the way everybody works. Now. Sure. Well, and so I'm curious, you know, what was it about the approach that you guys were doing that you feel like really changed your acting approach or, or gave you different tools or, or uh, new tools that, that you were able to kind of pick up and, and start to use regularly and develop? Well, I think it, I think it was that sense of play, the sense of fun, the, uh, well, I mean, the script was sacrosanct to a large extent, but on the other hand, uh, the way you played it, it just, you could change it from night to night. I mean, it, it didn't really, I, I think it. I think it gives you. Oddly enough, I heard this about, in reference to children giving children more freedom, mm -hmm. uh, and they actually become better adults. I mean, if they aren't over supervised, and I, th I think we weren't terribly overly supervised. <laughs> you know, when we were when we were starting out. I mean, it was all just kind of. It it was kind of rock and roll theater. I mean, you you would right. respond on a very visceral level. And of course, you know, one's feelings change from night to night, you know, how much sugar you've had, that, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, whether you're late, you know, getting there to the theater. And, and so, of course, the, the performance can change sometimes quite drastically. Mm -hmm. And uh, the idea of, you know, being open to that, 
uh, when when you see it happening on stage or being open to doing doing it yourself. I mean, that's uh, that leads to a certain boldness and confidence uh, that I mean, you just kind of run off the end of the the end of the diving board and you're 99% sure there's some water down there. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, on the other hand, it's, you got to be open to the possibility that it's not going to work. I mean, I mean, one of the, some of the favorite stories we have around here are, are of the disasters and, and the things we got so wrong that, uh, you know, but the thing is we were bold. I mean, that's right. It's, uh, there's a certain confidence that comes with being bold on stage that, uh, that you can carry over into, into work that you do outside of the company. Right. And, and it's almost that, you know, you, you don't know what is possible unless you go so far in one extreme. You know, if you don't really challenge the, the limits or the boundaries, you won't really know if that works. Um, that if you're just, that's true. If you're just kind of playing at it or playing at an idea or, um, you know, half, half committing, you, you, you and the audience won't really ever be able to experience of, does this actually work if I fully commit to it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's an interesting thing. I mean, uh, for instance, in Minneapolis, where I worked for a while, the sort of the, the gold standard is the Guthrie, of course. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. You can go to the Guthrie and watch an actor do. I mean, they'll be they'll be, they'll take chances in rehearsals, but you know they'll they'll lock a performance. At least they did at the time I I was familiar with them. Right. They'll lock a performance, and it'll be exactly you could set you could set your watch to it mm-hmm. every mm-hmm. month. Chicago, not so much. I mean, there's that sort of like every evening has its own requirements. Every evening has its own surprises. Mm. And uh, I think that's one of the things that makes it so exciting. I mean, not necessarily better, but right. but on the other hand, it's it's a different experience. Yeah, I, I mean, and you've you've been so fortunate to be um, part of the company for for so long, and and uh, you know, ca- counting it up, I, I you know, you've done over forty productions with Seven Wolf, and, and I'm curious, which ones do you feel have taught you the most as an actor? If if you had to pick a couple or if a couple immediately spring to mind i guess um oh i guess you know it depends on what the lesson is uh uh there was a play we did called road to nirvana by arthur coppett which mm-hmm. i i thought was terribly funny and uh well so we all did you know uh, janine morick was in it uh uh rick snyder um Moira Harris. Any, anyway, and we all thought, and Gary Sinise directed, and we, it was sort of a takeoff on uh, Speed the Plow. Okay. Yep. And, uh, oh, it was extremely profane. I mean, it was, <laughs> I mean, it was beyond. And uh, part of the, part of the plot turned on cutting yourself, slashing your, slashing your wrists. Uh, that, that was part of uh, this initiation in the first act, uh, you know, eating, you know, human excrement. That was another part of the, uh, I mean, it was just so over the top. And anyway, when we finally did it, uh, there would be people that hated the play, but they'd sit through the second act so that they could stay for the curtain call and boo. Wow. We would lose, I would say a good 30 to 40% of the audience, every performance. They'd walk out at intermission, and the ones that stayed 
always always seem to regret it. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I, sh- I take that back. I mean, some people really thought it was funny. A lot of people in the company thought it was funny. But you know, and it was, you know, because it was just so it was so over the top. But I mean, I learned from that. I mean, to just soldier on. I mean, you get people grumbling and talking back at you from the audience and, you know, booing at the curtain call. You know, it just kind of, you just kind of let that go and, uh, and chalk it up. Uh, and, and then of course, you know, uh, the things where you really learn are, are when you work with people that are like just fantastically good, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, working with, uh, Oh, John Malkovich, for instance. I mean, he would never do two things the same way. Mm. And you always had to be on top of it. Um, uh, John Mahoney working with Laurie or Joan Allen. I mean, you know, I mean, even uh, any number of people. Sure. You just, you end up being, you know, in this, and working with very good directors, too. You you get to the point where you get very sensey about uh where opportunities are. I mean, a good director won't necessarily think of everything, but a good director will also create a situation where you discover things on, on your own. I mean, well into the run. Mm -hmm. Um, Tina Landau is one of those directors uh, who creates something. Anna Shapiro, uh, they'll, they'll create a situation that is so, I mean, gem-like, uh, that you always find things, you always discover things as time goes on. The, the, the experience just becomes richer and richer. So I would, I would have, the August Osage, for instance, was, was one of those examples. That's, that's, mm-hmm. I really learned a lot during that. And, you know, we had a very long run with that. Sure. And, um, and the thing I learned there is that you don't have to act so much. Mm. I, I ended up over the course of the run doing less and less and less and less and less and actually revealing more and more and more about this character. Mm. Uh, it, it was a very interesting experience. But yeah, I'd have to say Road to Nirvana, uh, August Osage, uh, The Seafarer to some degree. Oh, yeah? To a large degree, I should say, yeah. What uh, What specifically with The Seafarer comes to mind? Two things. One was uh, uh, the scene where where the devil reveals himself to mm-hmm. this uh, to the character I'm playing, and, and Tom Irwin played played Satan in this. Had this long, just exquisite monologue where you really begin to feel a lot of sympathy for the devil. Mm. I mean, because he's you know if he's trying to get you in the hell. The idea, the thing behind that is he's in hell all the time. And, right. and you can see, you can see that, you could see that in Tom's performance. I mean, he would take some joy, some bitter joy in like destroying somebody's soul. But you could tell that it, 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 there was never any real joy in it because mm-hmm. it was just, he was always living, he was living in this constant state of despair. But you would listen, I would listen to him, and I, and I was on stage while he was doing this this speech, and to be to learn to be responsive without pulling focus, to learn to be attentive and 
there for the other, uh, for the person in the other scene without you know without stepping on their lines um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i mean that was that was quite a uh that was quite a learning situation for me you know it's uh it's interesting you bring up uh tom because uh i saw uh, domesticated uh, a couple years back uh-huh. at steppenwolf and i think it's yeah. for almost the first act he has nothing to say but he plays a very prominent role and and a lot of it is responses and and silent responses um, yeah. and so it, it but it's a very engaging character you can tell he wants to say something but he but it's a very engaging character and 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 it kind of goes along with what you're saying that you have to understand your relationship to the story of how can you be emotive without pulling focus and doing too much exactly exactly and that's that's always a, a I mean a, a wonderful example of that is uh Glenn Headley in uh, Balman Gilead. I, mm-hmm. I, that was I'm sure before your time, but Laurie Metcalf had a rather famous um, twenty-minute monologue. But she's giving the entire story to Glenn Headley, mm. and Glenn was always engaged, always engaged. And I don't know that Laurie could have done the speech without her. Mm. Uh, it was just. You know, she was amused. She was like shocked. She was, you know, sort of appalled in places, and uh, but engaged all the time, like like a human being. You know, right. that's that's one of the questions we always ask. We always ask during rehearsals here, especially early in rehearsals. What would a human being do in this situation? Hmm. And that's that's not always as easily answered as as one would like. Right. But uh, but yeah, I think uh, uh, listening is um, you know being aware. Uh, Tina Landau is uh, does um, this approach to doing theater where everything becomes significant. Mm. Uh, oddly enough, I mean it's a very enriching sort of experience. Well, you mentioned that kind of journey of discovery uh, through rehearsal and and, and certainly performances and, and your example with uh, August Osage. I, I was reading that you had said when you were doing the cherry orchard, yeah, it, it was a character that you didn't quite get or you didn't, you know, kind of totally figure him out, but it was this endless journey of discovery. And I was wondering, do you hope for one or the other going into a project? Do you hope that you, you get it or do you hope that it is always kind of just out of your reach? Oh, I think just out of, I, I mean, you, you, certainly, I mean, you, you get, you can glom onto a performance and, and, mm-hmm. and do it from night to night. I mean, you really have to have, you have to be able to produce. <laughs> right. But on the other hand, if, if, uh, oh, I don't, when I was playing Guy, it, it was an interesting thing. One of the things I discovered about him is that, at least in our production, is that he despised the servants. He was he was of the upper class, and the people under him were essentially slaves, and he despised them. Hmm. So over the course of the run, we would I was working with Leonard, uh, but he was playing Fears, mm-hmm. and of course he Fears in the chariot. He he's he's dying at the end of the play, and I think he's got the last lines actually. But it got to the point where Leonard and I. We we were constantly working together, interacting with one another. But 
over the course of the run, I, I learned to ignore him more and more and more. I would like reach my arms back and, and my coat would be put on mm. or, you know, I'd notice something on my sleeve and hold, hold my arm out and he'd brush it off. But all the time, just ignoring him. There was a, there was a scene, um, oh gosh, like weeks into the run where, uh, one of the servants had an exit, uh, while I was on, uh, just before I made my exit and I realized she was, she had been blocked. I didn't realize this for weeks, but she had been blocked just like several feet from me after she had been heartbroken by this, you know, jilted by her lover. And so I saw her standing there crying suddenly one night and I knew she had an exit. So I stomped at her Hmm. and, but she knew she had the exit. We had never done this before. It had never been rehearsed and she was shocked, but she knew exactly why I was stomping at her because, you know, she was making a scene and, you know, she was a servant making a scene and she immediately took up that that motivation to get herself off stage. I mean, it was something. Again, it, it's it's something that uh, she had never, you know, we'd never worked out before. But we had gotten to the point where we were so open to one another that we could we could change a moment in the play without even thinking about it. Mm, um, wow. So anyway, that was that. That's another example of yeah whatever it was we were talking about. <laughs> um, Sorry, I just got... No, no, no. It, it, it was actually a, a great example. Um, well, we were talking about just that process of discovery, and I think that was a, a beautiful example of it. Yeah. You know, you mentioned John Mahoney earlier, and I know you worked with John a number yeah. of times. Yeah. And, and I saw uh, the two of you in the Rembrandt uh, last year. Oh, yeah. And I was just curious how your relationship with John working together over the years informed your scenes together. Oh, it's, it's, uh, you know, years ago we did, uh, um, uh, no man's land, Pinter's play. Yeah. I shaved my head for it. And, and John, of course we were both, we were both like decades too young to play the roles, but you know, that's just what we did at the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but John and I have had a working relationship for so many years that, you know, and and plus we have the same, many of the same sensibilities in terms of performance. That uh, and you know some great, we differ quite a, we we differed quite a bit too. But but yeah, I mean that just, I think the ease one has with somebody else on stage is is something that uh, increases over time. So, uh, but yeah, that that certainly informed the work that we did in the Rembrandt. And, you know, so John's character is, uh, you know, towards the end of his life. And were you aware that John himself was nearing the end of his life? Well, uh, no, I, 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 I knew he had been unwell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I found out during an interview that we were doing over at uh, WTTW that he had had stage four lung cancer, oh, which wow. he hadn't said boo you know, to anyone here. He was a very, very private person. Mm-hmm. And I knew he was unwell, but I had no idea, you know. Do you, do you feel like that, whatever knowledge you felt like you had informed your playing of the scene? Was it was it more personal that way or or no? I, ha- I wasn't anticipating as Francis, 
you know, that John was dying right. or anything. And, yeah. and, and frankly, I, I, that would have been a bit much to deal with on stage. Sure. I mean, yeah. there, there's certain, I mean, there's, there's certain things that you want to go to that you want to reach into the reservoir and, you know, utilize in order to make, make a scene more realistic or seemingly connected. But on the other hand, if, if I had known that John was dying, that would have been a terrible distraction. Mm, uh, yeah. And, uh, no, that's that. That would have been too much real life in the scene. But I, I do have to say that it was. I knew he was unwell, and I, and I felt, you know, you you, you work with. I just loved John. I yeah. mean, what a what a kind, sweet man, and generous almost to a fault, and and actually just having somebody like that in my life over so many years. That was something that was quite easy to plug into. If I were, you know, yeah, if I, I could I could I end up living? Uh, I don't know if I, I, I don't know if John Mahoney's the kind of person I'd want to share my life with. <laughs> but on the other hand, I can certainly make that work for you know twenty minutes on stage. Right. Um, I, I can yeah. very well imagine that. For, for my money, uh, those were arguably some of the best scenes. In, in the play, uh, it, it was just a, it was, it was a joy watching the two of you work together. Oh, it was, I mean, it was just, I, it's, it's the familiarity. Yeah. And sort of the, the desire to amuse one another and to, to be there for one another, I think is, uh, that, that's really what made the scene work. So, and it's, and plus it's some pretty good writing too. Yes. Well, that actually is a great segue to, I know you were open to talking about one of the monologues from the Rembrandt. Yeah. Uh, so this, this is a monologue that takes place between you and John, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. And he's, he's been fading in and out. Uh, and I've, I've just lost my job because I've touched the Rembrandt in the, uh, in the museum. Right. And, uh, which is sort of an act of rebellion and an act which he knows it's going to get him fired, but he doesn't care uh, because his lover is dying. And so it ends up, he's going to spend more time with Henry. My character is going to spend more time with John's character, Simon. Okay. Uh, as a result of his being fired. And so there's, there's a consciousness of that in the act, but there's also a, it's an interesting thing. There's, there's sort of this, almost this traffic accident of metaphors crashing together in this last, in the last few minutes of the play, where he's trying to put all of this, all of this influence and all this emotion together into something of a, a cohesive statement for himself, which he partially succeeds in doing. But it's a it's a it's a real interesting moment because um, he he ends up searching his way through most of the most of the speech. Yeah. Well, just I mean, visually looking at the text, it's almost uh, certain portions of it look like uh, a poem. Uh, how it's how it's. Oh, they, that's yeah, yeah. She had very specific ideas, uh, not necessarily in in pausing, you know, at the end of each line and delivering, right. but she wanted certain things to jump out uh, at the audience. 
Well, so I'm wondering if you can kind of take us, yeah, take us a little bit through how you approach it or or what things you found uh, in the text. Well, he's talking about, he begins, he says he touched the painting and, uh, and Simon is, is stunned by this because, you know, Henry's a bit of a, he's a bit of a stick in the mud. Uh, Simon's a bit more of a philosopher and a poet and, and, uh, um, sort of emotionally adventurous and and Henry's just you know, no never kind of turned his back on his painting career and never could quite so anyway he 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 touches the painting and the first thing that comes out of his mu- out of his mouth is it was surprisingly spiky he says and of course with the ridges of the paint coming up and in a way that's sort of a an indica- uh, that that refers also to their relationship. That's just a a clue to it. He he reached out, he touched the painting, and he found it spiky. He found it he found that it was it was sort of a trick. I mean, it's uh, he goes on to say, art is such a slight thing. It's a trick. The closer you get, it recedes like a shadow. It lives. It glows. And then you touch it and it's not really there or it's all there. Rembrandt, Homer, I touched it all. And, and essentially that's, that's what happens in a relationship as well. I mean, you look at it too closely and it becomes very, very sort of ephemeral. I mean, you can't, in a way, it's sort of like, you don't want to know how the sausage is made. You know what I mean? Sure, of course. It's, uh, you need a certain amount of distance in order to really experience something uh, in the proper way. Uh, so anyway, he talks about, um, and then he suddenly gets an idea of his dad. I mean, he remembers the first time he saw the painting. Uh, they're going to go see it. Oh, let's see what they, what they spent $2.3 million on. And he remembers his father standing there and not knowing how he was responding to the painting at all. He says, I never asked him what he thought of the painting, if he liked it, if it pleased him. I'd like to think it did, that somehow he was touched by it. I regret that actually terribly. It's just a slight thing, canvas, paint, and yet it contains what? Worlds. Truths. And then he says, and I think this is where it this is where it draws a lawful lot of stuff gets drawn together in the scene. And he says, I stood there today and I thought, there's only one of this, meaning the painting, in all of time. I touched that fragility and my heart just and he can't go on. He doesn't have any words for it. And that's that's what he discovers, that there's no way to summarize. He turns to Simon, and he realizes that, yes, there's only one of this in all of time, and that he somehow touched it and his heart, and he can't even explain how his life is different. He can't even, there's no way that he can really articulate what it is that he's feeling. Mm -hmm. And then he finishes it off by saying, I want you to know you've been a wonderful partner. You have 
I have failed you so terribly, so terribly, but I'm here now, I'm here. And that's how the play ends. He's given up everything in order to like study Simon, in order to be there with Simon at the end, because not that he'll, not that he even has any, any sense of what it is he's going to do. It's just that he knows he has to be there because his heart tells him that he must. Mm. And, uh, and, that's, and that's, how one, that's how one reacts to art as well. I mean, you can't really, you know, when you, when you hear Chopin, I mean, can you explain what it is that you're feeling? Well, no. I mean, it's like trying to explain a joke. I mean, you, 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 you destroy it by examining it too quickly right, right. or too, too closely. And I think that's what, uh, as, as I go through the speech, uh, that's the sort of stuff that, sort of stuff that you look for, how it becomes, how it becomes personal. I mean, he's talking about the painting, but no, he's not really talking about the painting. He's talking about the relationship, or at least you want the audience to think about the relationship that the two of them have. Right. And how, how the painting relates to that. And you let them, you know, you let them create their own experience in that. So anyway, that's, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, no, it's, it's beautiful. And uh, I mean, uh, I'm, of course it always helps when you have layered writing, uh, too, that, uh, yeah. someone who's been very thoughtful about it at, with your process now, how much of this discovery was kind of your own homework, uh, outside of rehearsals? How much was it, you know, from the director or, you know, with John, uh, you know, or, or during rehearsals, did you discover more of it? Oh, during rehearsals, you discover more of it, of course. I mean, it's uh, one of the things I've been, one of my terrible failings as an actor is that I hate memorizing lines. I just, I mean, I mentally bridle at it. I will sit there and try to memorize lines and I will literally fall asleep. My mind will just shut down. I, I can't, I don't want to do it. I just can't. And it's boring and it's, tedious and and uh for the show we're doing now downstate i've i was practically off book by the time we started rehearsals and i i much prefer that i've been terribly lazy as an actor as uh, the last few years and i'll i'll never do another play again unless i have the lines pretty much solid when i start rehearsals because you're just wasting you know everybody's time otherwise mm. um but that's but i have to say the thing is you hear the music of it and that's really indicative of what's going on in the scene emotionally. Uh, sometimes it's as important as it is, as what you're saying. I mean, the way the lines come out of your mouth. Um, I mean, realizing what it is the, the author's trying to get at. You can't really get at it until you've got the lines memorized and, and you can actually say them in a very commanding manner. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What, what what am I what 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 am I answering here? What question am I on? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I I think you've answered it. It was just kind of uh, understanding more about you know because a lot of actors uh, listening, it's it's very illuminating to hear you know what you eventually came to, but it was also kind of yeah. understanding you know where you started and and how you got to all of those discoveries in the in the speech. Oh yeah, I've noted that. Um, 
I've noted over time. I was talking. <laughs> I was talking to Ken Freeman in rehearsal the other day. And I'm a few years older than Ken is, but he's been around for a while. And I, I said, "Isn't this supposed to get easier as time goes <laughs> on?" And he said, "Yeah, I thought it was supposed to. It's just you just get a new set of problems the older you get. I mean, everything starts to. It, it's an interesting thing. I've I've noted that." I was actually much more technical, I think, as an actor when I was much younger. I I could I could memorize very quickly and, and I I would occasionally find myself gifted with in a particular play with uh, with the correct timing and, and how you know how things get worked out. But I, I wasn't really you know, you could do I could do laundry lists, you know, in the grocery lists I should say, you know, while I was on stage. I mm-hmm. I could be completely outside of the scene. And you know, still be into it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm finding now that it, it all becomes emotionally much more daunting as time goes on. Maybe it's just that I know so much more or have experienced so much more that uh, that all comes crowding in uh, during the rehearsal process, and emotionally it becomes much more trying. Uh, and taxing as it goes on. I mean, you start to investigate. Well, I mean, for instance, I was playing Soren in um, The Seagull, mm-hmm. and Bob Falls was directing it. It was very hardcore uh, Stanislavski stuff, and uh, I was still smoking at the cigarettes at the time. And, and I suddenly realized I I was thinking about death and Soren becomes very ill by the fourth act. And, and that's what the fourth act is about. People come and visit him because he's dying. Mm, okay. And I realized that I'd, I'd been thinking about death, I mean, for weeks. And I'm standing there on Dearborn <laughs> Avenue with a cigarette in my hand, you know, smoking away. And, and you know, I tried for years to quit. And I, it just suddenly... I just took it so seriously all of a sudden. I dropped a cigarette and I never had another one. Wow. I quit smoking after 40 years. And it was sort of acting that, that brought me there because as time, like I said, as time goes on, I'm just taking it much more seriously, emotionally. It gets it gets a little harder to, not so much to put it away at night, but well, it's like Amy Morton says, your body doesn't know you're pretending. Mm. If your character's suffering the the tortures of the damned for an hour and a half, two hours every night, so are you. Right. You know, your body is going through all of that. And, you know, and sometimes, you know, where acting is always, I guess, fun, it becomes quite a chore. I, I have noticed after time, you know, the more time I spend doing it, it's it, it becomes emotionally difficult mm-hmm. uh, to do. But um, anyway, that's that's just what what I've come to over the yeah. course, of, course of time. Well, I would love to ask you some more, you know, kind of shorter uh, questions, and, sure. and your your answers don't have to be shorter. So, um, but you know, looking at some of the, the different things you've done uh, over your career, I just had a number of other questions. Uh, yeah. What was it like going back to work on Shakespeare when you were doing the Lunt Fontaine Fellowship? Oh, that well, I'd never done much. I'd done um, 
I've never done much Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, I did uh, Taming of the Shrew. I guess Sheldon Patinkin directed Moira Harris and me uh, in that. But that's, you uh, know, I guess. And I imagine during college or, or graduate work, you know, maybe yeah, a little bit college, there. Yeah. Yeah. But but no, I mean, uh, not really, not really very much uh, uh, in terms of like um, the Ten Chimneys situation. It was it was very. I had had one piece, I had an audition piece that I had memorized. You know, oh, what a rogan peasant slave am I mm-hmm. from Hamlet? Right. And uh, I wish I had. I, I truly wish I'd spent more time doing Shakespeare. Uh, I mean, it's so it's so rich and there's so much in terms of like, you know, dealing with the audience. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, for instance, how do you do that? How do you do that speech? Oh, what a rogan peasant slave am I? Right. I mean, is he talking to the audience? Is he sort of musing to himself and, you know, does it vary over the course of the, of the speech itself? I mean, there are a lot of mental gymnastics in this. Um, I mean, Shakespeare sort of invented human psychology. Uh, Bloom, yeah, the uh, the invention. What was that book? Yeah, yeah book, it's, invention, it's, it's invention, the human? invention of the human. I think it is. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's true. I mean, he was he was coming at the he was he had discovered something. He had discovered psychology that there were that there were deep wells of motivation. But this was coming from a person who had grown up essentially in the Middle Ages. I mean, mm-hmm. Shakespeare and, and Newton and all of those people living at that time sort of created the world that we live in right now. And I think, I think the writing that Shakespeare does is you can approach it from, oh, hundreds of different ways. It's a, it's a very rich experience in terms of performing it. And I just have never done very much of it. Wish I had. And did you, did you find, I mean, you know, even though you're not doing a lot of Shakespeare with Steppenwolf or, you know, maybe other theaters, did you find that there were still applicable, I guess, lessons or ideas that you were able to take away from that, that 10 chimneys experience? Yeah, I think so. I think working on that particular speech, mm-hmm. uh, I discovered that have you heard people talk about the term? I, I don't know if this is specific to Illinois State or, but locus. Yeah. The ones, I, the character's point of view, how that changes. Okay. In Shakespeare. Your locus, yeah, the point of view, the, the place that you're coming from on a particular speech can change drastically. It, it doesn't change very much in modern plays. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you start off on a speech and you're like usually talking to one person and, and, uh, you know, unless somebody starts waxing poetically, um, uh, they're pretty much staying on, you know, on message throughout the entire thing. But, but Shakespeare, I mean, his writing can, it can just soar. I mean, in the middle of, of Macbeth facing certain death, mm-hmm. uh, on the battlefield. You know, he can get very interior uh, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps at this petty pace from day to day, you know, and and uh, oh, I don't know. There's there's just it's so rich. Yeah. Uh, from, you know, from and the mental gymnastics associated with it are really fascinating. Very cool. And, you know, you, you just don't get that kind of writing. You, you No one else writes like that. Sure. 
and I think part of that is is it's 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 pre Freud, it's pre mm-hmm. you know this navel gazing society <laughs> that we live in now. I mean, it was just it gave it gives an op gives an actor an opportunity to soar, yeah, in almost any direction. So. Well, another thing I wanted to ask is, you know, certainly, you know, over the last maybe 10 or 15 years, I'm sure you've worked with a lot of younger actors uh, at Steppenwolf and and other theaters. And is there something that you feel like seems to be a common thread for, let's quote unquote, say success uh, among the younger actors you've come across? Oh, I have to say, I'm so knocked out. I'm so knocked out with people that are that I see coming through uh this this theater. I mean, they're so as I as I said earlier, they're so entrepreneurial. Uh god, they can do anything. <laughs> uh they can sing, they can dance, they can, you know, they can produce, they can direct, uh they do voice work. They're working on on movie scripts and I mean, I think, I think the, in a way that's it's it's somewhat out of necessity mm-hmm. because there's so many people chasing so few jobs that you have to be capable of doing pretty much anything at a moment's notice. But I mean, you know, as actors, I mean. Most of the actors I I knew, and certainly this was true of myself, I'd just wait for the phone to ring. You know, that was writing a script or writing a TV show or, or you know, mounting a um, – I mean, of course, technically now, uh, all that stuff is much more accessible. You don't need sure. an entire television network in order to do a TV show on the net. You just need a, a DSLR and a bunch of friends with some time on their hands, and you right. got yourself a movie. Um, but, uh, on the other hand, uh, people are, are creative enough and, and motivated enough that they, uh, well, like Kathleen O'Sullivan just wrote a script and produced it and just finished shooting it. Oh, I mean, wow. a feature length that took her like, I don't know, six to eight weeks, I think she said to write it. And she put it all together and she played, you know, one of the crazy girls in, um, the Crucible here at Steppenwolf, and, okay. and, and a lot of a lot of stuff she's sure, doing sure, sure, but, and and she's a, a very accomplished actress. But you know the fact that I mean she's writing and producing her own movies, and and you know if she's thirty five, I'll you know I'll leg wrestle you at Clark and State. You know it's <laughs> uh, um, it's really it's really kind of amazing, and that's that's a common thread with with most young actors I've met now. Hmm. I mean, they, they teach, they just do all sorts of things. Yeah. And that's, that's, we, we didn't have those kinds of skill sets when I was, when I was coming up Hmm. and uh, all of these people are like quadruple and quintuple threats. Right. So to speak, it's really quite remarkable. So that's, that's what I have noticed. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that's good to hear that, uh, you know, it's, it's good to be ready for anything. And, and, and also, um, having that kind of eye on producing your own works or, or creating your own job, so to speak. Uh, that if, Absolutely. if, it, if a job doesn't exist, well, you can, you can make one for yourself. That's true. I'm curious, just kind of wrap up here. What are you excited about these days? These days, I'm excited about painting. Really, I'm painting pictures now, and 
uh, I think I'd like to go back and revisit this script that Carolyn and I wrote. But I find myself, I find myself really wanting to have something that that results in an artifact. You know what I'm saying? It's mm. uh, it's not as ephemeral as oh, a stage performance, right? I mean, because it it you know as you know it 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 disappears after uh, you know as it's being played out, right? And it's only something that that people in that darkened room can experience. And I find that you know I'm not a very good painter, but I I certainly enjoy it, and it's it's something that leaves a bit of a mark. Yeah, as there, opposed yeah. to acting, uh, like I said, an artifact. It's something that people can enjoy long after I'm gone. So yeah, or or not. <laughs> Maybe they'll just burn them. You know that's that's fine too. I mean, one of the most freeing things about uh, about my painting is that I stopped caring whether it was any good or not. <laughs> and so, I think uh, I've enjoyed it quite a bit more since I've since I've come to that decision. Well, it sounds like that uh, the play you were talking about, where people booing at the curtain, you just uh, you know you just keep painting no matter what anyone else thinks. That's right. No matter what anybody says, just just keep painting. You'll get better over yeah. time. It's it'll take care of itself. Uh, well, Fran, thank you so much for your time. This has been a really wonderful conversation. Really appreciate well, it. Well, I, I hope there's, I hope something you can, I hope there's something you can pull together. Oh, I'm sure I can, you know, uh, uh, cobble ten minutes of this and it'll be usable. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It was. It was let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. It was a really fantastic chat. I, I really appreciate how uh, open and uh, generous you were with your time and and what you've learned. Well, I appreciate your doing this. This is, uh, this is quite an endeavor. I, I wish you all the luck in the world with it. Well, thank you. All right. Best of luck. Hey, guys. Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe so you don't miss anything ahead. Be sure to visit WorkingActorsJourney.com for additional info and links for items mentioned in today's episode, as well as all the episodes. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. All the links are on our site and in the episode notes. Become a premium member and enjoy additional benefits and perks of the show starting at just $2 per month. Head over to WorkingActorsJourney.com slash premium to join the Working Actors community. And don't forget to claim your free audiobook at WorkingActorsJourney.com slash audible. Thanks again to today's guest and to everyone that makes these episodes possible. And a special thanks to you for listening. I'm Nathan Agan, and enjoy the journey.